morning, everybody. Good morning again, I guess. Um, it's so good to be with you. It's so fun to be back. I feel like, I mean, I've only been gone for two months, but it feels to me like it's been a long time. Maybe for you, it feels like not very long. I don't know, whatever. Um, but it's really good to be back and to see your faces and to hear how uh, you all are doing. And um, my family sends their greetings, Emily and Scout and Ruthie and little Danny. Uh, Danny is as big as Scout and Ruthie now and is a terror in our house. Um, and so it, the fact that he's not here is going to make it a lot quieter in this room today. Um, well, we're in the season of ordinary time. Some of you may know what that means. Some of you may not. Ordinary time is this um, season in the church calendar, which is a thing that we try to live by or orient ourselves to uh, as a church community. That is a time when ordinary is a weird name for it. Um, it doesn't have to do with like normal. It has another story, but we don't need to get into that. It, it's, a, it's a season when we try to, uh, we join with the church around the world and we try to do our best to do uh, what the old theologians say, recapitulate, which is like gather together. You gather together like the whole story that the Bible teaches, the whole story of God um, making the world and saving the world and promising to come make the world uh, new again. You gather that all together and, and you try to um, allow God to seek us in this season with that full story and to peer into the nooks and crannies of our lives and see if there's any wicked way within us, which of course there is. And that wicked way is of course met with love by God and then a call to sin and go no more. And so it's not a boring time. When we call it ordinary, we don't mean like not important. This is actually just like life. This is what it is. The Christian life is to take this story in its totality and to push it into our lives and try to become more like Jesus. Now, one of the ways that we've done this in the past, um, I'm not sure what you guys are preaching on this summer, but one of the ways we've done it in the past is we've, we've walked through the Psalms. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Not all of them, just one. And uh, we listen to God speak to us in the Psalms. Um, and one of the reasons this is good for this season is because the Psalms are the original like prayer book. Um, of God's people. And they are words that God has given to us to teach us how to pray. We're learning how to pray when we engage with the Psalms. And the reason that it's good for us to do this is because we need practice. We need practice praying. Um, we need practice putting Psalms on our lips because uh, the way that we pray shapes the way that we believe. This is something that Christians have believed for a long, long time, that um, it doesn't, what, it doesn't just, the, what we believe and the way we are in the world doesn't only just emerge out of us. Um, when we give ourselves over to ways of living and ways of speaking, uh, that will shape how we believe, what we believe. The old Latin phrase, I don't know Latin, but the old Latin phrase is lex orandi, lex credendi, the way that we pray shapes the way that we believe. And so, if you are praying and your prayer life does not hit the full range of emotions that are, that are present in the Psalms, then your prayer life is lacking in some serious way. And so we need to be able to say the kinds of things that we find in the Psalms. And if you spent much time with the Psalms, they're not always that uplifting. We need to be able to say these kinds of things to God, to hear ourselves say it, and then let God teach us about ourselves. And so it's good for us to do this together. So this morning we're looking at Psalm 50, and I want us to sit together and let God teach us to pray, and in doing so teach us to believe. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. God, thank you so much for uh, this morning, uh, this beautiful morning. 
and a beautiful space to meet in and uh, another day for us to gather together as your people and to uh, sing to you, to pray to you, to listen to you, and to feast uh, on you. And so, God, I pray that you would be at work in all of us, myself included in this time, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Amen. All right, I'm going to read the text. Psalm 50. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. You see a thief and you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. So one of the things that you will learn if you're in close community with people, um, for me that relationship most recently has been marriage, but it could be a roommate or something like that. One of the things that you will learn when you're in close community with people is that uh, we're very different, all of us. And um, the way, uh, one of the things that is true about marriage is that, you know, when you get married, you, you do know someone and you think you know them a lot better than you do. And then uh, the more time that you spend with each other, uh, even years and years and years down the road, uh, there will be moments when you look at each other and you think that you have no idea who this person is standing before you. This is, any, has anybody experienced this? It's a very strange, yes. Okay, there we go. I've only been married for well, almost five years, but this is a pretty fr frequent experience, and it's one that I've heard uh, couples that have been married longer experience as well. And, and there are all kinds of reasons for this. One of the main reasons is because we come from different families, right? And different fa families have their own traditions, their own ways of kind of living life. And um, Emily and I have had our family cultures collide with each other on many occasions. Like we have, uh, there are, you know, there are different theories of gift giving. Uh, my family is kind of like you are to you are to tell the person who's getting you a gift a general category of gift which you would like and then 
the giver is supposed to go like personally discover, like find out what, you know, what would be a nice like personal touch to get you. Um, and if you don't do that, then it's not sincere. Emily's family is, a, is the kind of family where it's like, I want you to tell me exactly what you want. And if you don't get exactly what they said, then you must not love them. You know what I'm saying? So that's been a source of like unknowing. We've looked at each other and been like, I have no idea who you are. Um, there's other, th- like Emily, my wife, is really like militant about cleaning the kitchen. Um, she's militant kind of about cleaning everything. Uh, and I'm not. And so that's been, that's been a real, uh, I, have, I have adjusted in her way is much better than mine. Um, but it's been another thing where we've looked at each other and been like, you are not like me. You are not like me. Two have become one, but we are not the same. Now, the most intense experience of this was before we were married, and it was the first birthday that we spent together, uh, First, Emily's first birthday that we spent together. My family, I'm, I'm a twin, and I was born on my dad's birthday, and my younger sister was born the day before. So there's six people in my family, and four birthdays, four, four of the six birthdays are in two days. So the birthdays were a big deal, but they were not like an individual big deal. It was a group, group deal. Um, Emily's an only child, so birthdays were a big deal, big, big deal for her. And uh, so for us, um, it was kind of like when it was a group thing, it was like the meal, the group meal is the gift, right? Like this is, this is where we're celebrating your birthday. Um, and for Emily, uh, the, w- the, f- the first thing she told me uh, when uh, we were at dinner, which was my gift to her for her birthday, was, no, no, dinner is the venue for the gift. And I was like a broke seminary student. I was like, this is all I got. I'm sorry. Um, she told me I could say that, by the way. So, um, but it's one of those moments where we looked at each other and we were appalled by one another. I thought she was insane and she thought I was insane. And we realized that like you, I thought that you were one like me, but you're not. And this is a pretty common experience, I think, in our life with God as well. And that is what this psalm is about. And so what I want us to look at as, or think about, consider as we're looking at this psalm, are these words that God gives us. He says, you thought that I was one like yourself. And I want us to recognize that this psalm is about presumption and despair. It's about the folly of presuming upon God's love, his care, his, his grace for you, but it's also about the folly of despairing of God's love. So that's how we're going to look at it today. So this is a psalm where God is teaching us not to presume. What do I mean? I mean not to take for granted God's provision, his favor, his grace, to think that it's like somehow you're right, that God is good to you, that God sustains your life like in this moment, as if it's something that God owes you. The psalmist here is teaching us that we cannot presume that God, who is the one who sustains your breath and my breath right now, does so because of, if you're a Christian, like how often you pray or how much you tithe or how often you go to church or the Bible study that you lead or the mission trips that you've been on or whatever. And if you're not a Christian... God does not sustain your life because of like how well your life maps onto the kind of vision of an acceptable life that our culture tells us that we should live. This is not why God does this. And the reason that we ought not presume upon God's like gracious disposition to us is because God is not like you and me. God is other. Now, that's not really a revolutionary thing to say. I think we would all probably say that if we were pressed. You know, if, if God exists, he's probably not like us. Even though we do our best in many ways to like try to be not God of the universe, but like God of our own little realms, our own little kingdoms, our homes, our families, our careers, our businesses. But deep down, we know, you know, I know, 
that we're not God. God is not real. He's not like you and me. He, 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 he is other. And look at how the psalmist puts it in verses one and two. It says, the mighty one, the Lord speaks and summons the earth. Who summons the earth but God, not us. He speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. God speaks and summons the earth day by day. The only reason the sun came up today, which is to say the only reason the earth continued to rotate on its axis that tilts the northern hemisphere towards the sun in this time of year, which is the season that we call summer, the only reason that you and I didn't disintegrate overnight or right now is because God didn't want that to happen. The only reason you have life in your body, the only reason you have eyes to see or hands to touch or ears to hear is because God made you and me and the world and everything in it. He did it. And deep down, you know this, whether you're Christian or not. We know that we're fragile and dependent. We know that we didn't make ourselves. We know that we didn't design how our bodies work or how the laws of physics operate that hold our feet on the ground or fill our lungs with air or cause the synapses, whatever is in your brain that makes it work. They don't, we, didn't, we don't cause them to fire. And this is, this is true, and, most, and Christians have recognized this for years and years, and one of the ways that they have um, thought to think about this is sometimes it's a lot easier to say what God is not than what God is. That's how different God is from us. Now, none of this is to say that we can't know anything about God because he has revealed himself to us. It's simply to say that like the extent to which we can comprehend God in what he's made and in what he's revealed to us in his scriptures is to God, it's like baby talk. It's like God condescends to us in this way, in like the best way, and it is his joy to listen to us. Just the same way that it's my joy to uh, go in to pick my son, little Danny, up from his crib. You know, I go in there, I can be having a normal adult conversation in the living room, and then I walk in there, and as soon as I cross the threshold of the door to, to pick him up, my voice like, elevates and register. I'm speaking in a falsetto. I'm making just babbling noises to him. And I'm squishing my nose into his cheeks. And as he squeaks and squawks, and his little squeaks and squawks are to me what our like most like robust theological formulations are to God. And it's a joy to hear. But that is how different God is. It's so different that one of the thing, one of the ways that one theologian said that uh, we should put it is sometimes our safest eloquence is silence. It's eloquent. Like that's how different God is. Our eloquence is our silence. Annie Dillard, who's this person who writes memoirs and some great stuff you should read her, she talks about how it's, it's madness that we like dress up and wear like ladies' hats to church because we should be wearing crash helmets because someday maybe the God who we say we're meeting with will arrive in his fullness and it will be a storm <laughs> because he's not like us and because he isn't like us you can't manipulate him i can be manipulated if you tell me that we're going to go get some barbecue or like a tasty ipa or something like that uh i'll come move your couch you don't have to twist my arm like i'll come do it i can be manipulated in all kinds of different ways but god is not like me and he's not like you and he can't be manipulated look at verse eight he says not for your sacrifices do i rebuke you your burnt offerings are continually before me. You're doing the, the like religious things. You're doing all these things. But it's not as if now, because you're doing those like good religious things, which may be good on their own, it's not as if because you're doing that, now God owes you something. Because God cannot owe anyone anything. Because everything is from him. 
Look at verses 9 to 13. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Uh, for every beast of the forest is mine. I, the cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, which I'm not, but if I were, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. I do not eat these things. The flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. God is saying, like, do you actually think that these things are for me? They're not for me. These things are for us, and they're good. They're good. This is why God tells us to do them, but they're for us, not for God. And they don't obligate God to anything. Now, this is the point, and it's especially important for us to hear, especially important for me to hear, that the way that we live, if you're a Christian, the like extent to which you conform to the ethical vision that is given to us in the Bible, or if you're not a Christian, the way that you, the, the extent to which your life conforms to whatever ethical vision you are trying to conform to, that does not obligate God to you. Going to church, knowing the prayers, knowing the jargon, the right clothes, sending your kids to the right schools, having the right jobs, being from the right town or the right family, or knowing all of these things, it does not obligate God. It's not the ground of God's disposition towards you. It's not why he treats you this way or that way. Now, if you are living this way, if you think that the way that you live obligates God towards you, it, 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 uh, it's easy to do. I do it all the time, but it is uh, devastating to the way that we live. And it's devastating for at least three reasons. The first one is that you begin to believe that God is in your debt. And I've already said that he can't be. And when you don't get what you want, the conversation usually goes something like this. Maybe you've had this conversation before. I have. Uh, I've done a lot for you, God. And I am wondering and waiting for you to do something for me. And we say this like while we're breathing air, you know, like it doesn't make much sense. God is not, he cannot be in debt because everything that is comes from God. Nothing you do is new to him. There is no lack in him that like your life or the way that you live like fills up. So God cannot be in your debt. Um, the second thing we might begin to believe is that we believe that God's posture towards us is like transactional, you know, it's like. If you're a student, you probably went to Chipotle with me uh, while I was here because it's delicious. But like I go to Chipotle, I give you my money and you give me a burrito, right? Like that's not how God relates to us. It's not just a thing that we give and then a thing that we get. God's ways are not transactional in that way. And, and we, then we may also believe that uh, we've done all these good, because we've done all these good things, because we helped set up this morning at church, which is great and you should do. But because you've done all these things, you've got like credit on your account that you can go spend. I've done this before. But there isn't some cosmic account that gets set up when you become Christian. That then you can like go spend until, and when it gets low, you can like go back to church or whatever. That's not how it works. But it is a temptation if we begin to think of God in this way that we can put him in our debt. The psalmist talks about this in a thinly veiled innuendo at the end of the psalm when he says, you keep company with adulterers or you give your mouth free reign for evil and speak against your brother. None of this is Christian. It has more to do with something like Hinduism or Buddhism. And so what I'm saying is that none of these things are the cause of God's grace to you. In other words, we don't have the right, as the psalmist says in verse 16, to recite the law of God, to take his covenant on our lips, and then to go out and despise the life that God has called us to. Do not presume upon God. 
Now, uh, for some of us in this room, maybe all of us in this room, uh, this is problematic because who among us in this room has not or is not now presuming on God? Who didn't wake up this morning and presume upon the breath that you began to breathe? We all do this. We all do this, Christian or not. Who among us has not thought at some point that the way that we live obligates the world or God to us? We all do this. And then if you're here and you are a Christian, you know, deep down, you know, actually, uh, that uh, you know how deep your sin goes and you know how other and how holy and how like wild God is and how God is a consuming fire and who will not be cowed by any human being. And if the secrets that we hide, like deep inside of us, and you know what I'm talking about, if the secrets that we hide from everybody got out, we would be finished. It can drive somebody to despair. But brothers and sisters, do not despair because listen to what the psalmist tells us. God does not need your pious life. He doesn't need a bull or a goat or a beast from our fields. He doesn't need a, lo- a list of like books that you've read or uh, uh, temptations you've resisted or nonprofits that you've volunteered for or the amount of money you've given away or like... I knew a guy who was really proud of the consecutive weeks he had been to church. God doesn't need that. And it's good to do all those things, truly. But if you think that God needs it, your life with God will never be one of freedom. It will always be one of slavery because you will never know if you've done enough. And this is not the gospel. While you can't presume that like your life, that your deeds put God in your debt, you should also not despair. Do not despair. Because God has come and he has given himself to us in Jesus Christ and he gives himself to us still. He will give himself to us at this table later this morning. And so the basic posture that the psalmist tells us that we need to adopt in our life is not one of despair or presumption, but of thanksgiving. Verse 14, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Another way of translating that is make make thanksgiving your sacrifice. Not all this other stuff. Make thanksgiving your sacrifice. Eucharisto is the word. Thanksgiving. And in the day of trouble, I will deliver you. What I want you to understand is that the basic spiritual posture towards God that we should have, that we were made to inhabit, is one of thanksgiving, of gratitude, of thanks, and of praise, because everything is a gift. And this is the story the Bible tells. It, it, it goes this way. It says, once there was nothing except God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that God dwelled together in perfect unity. They didn't need anything. And from that wholeness and that that fullness, God created, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And he made this world good and he gave it to us so that we could enjoy it and live with him in it. A complicating factor, as you may know, is that sin came into the world. And because of sin, life for some of us, you know, I've been talking about how life is a gift. For some of us in this room, life feels more like a curse than a gift. And the reason that is, is because of sin. When you dig deep enough. But the Christian account of the world and everything in it is that in the fullness of time, this God who is other, this one who is not like us in any reasonable way, this God of whom we can barely speak, this God of whom our most eloquent theological formulations, our longest, fanciest books sound like the babbles that my son, he's one and a half, he still can't talk. That's what it sounds like. This God who will not be obligated or put into our debt or controlled by his creatures, this God of whom our greatest eloquence is silence, he became one of us. And not just one of us. He became one of us in our weakest form. 
like a baby. There's some babies in this room. There's a lot of babies, from what I remember, in this congregation. And when was the last time you held a baby? If you haven't held a baby in a while, like, go find one and hold it. And then remember that this is how God came to us. This fragile little creature who can't even hold his neck up. This is how God, the consuming fire, chose to come to us and to give himself to us in his life and his death and his resurrection. It's outrageous, but it's true. And so what God wants from us is not to presume, and it is certainly not to despair, but it is to offer, the way the Bible puts it, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And so as hard as that may be for you to see today, as hard as it is to see in this room, as hard as it's going to be for you to see this, uh, when you think about what you did last week or when you are out in the world this week, I want you to understand that to be a Christian is to be somebody who believes that the God who made everything has come to us in Christ and he has given himself to us and he gives himself to us still. And that Christ has died and Christ has risen and he will come again to make all things new. And the basic reality of the, the way, the thing that Christians think about this world is that all is gift. And that if all is gift, the only response, the free response, is thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this psalm to us. Uh, this prayer that I'm guessing... If anybody in here is like me, I need practice um, putting on my lips. God, I pray that you would uh, help us to pray this, that you would help us to believe it, that you would help us to be people who do not presume upon you and people who do not despair, but people who remember your promises and what you've already done for us. God, I pray that you would be at work in us and that in our life of thanksgiving that we are growing into, that we would be better able to love you and to love our neighbor. And I pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.